Okay, welcome Dr. Steve and Jay Perlman. Welcome to uh, Rash's world here. And I'm going to ask you some questions about critical thinking because you are a critical thinking expert and educator. You've been doing it for a long time. So this is something that is, I think, sorely lacking in today's world society and the education system. Yeah. So two of our topics are going to be what's happening in the United States currently and uh, how critical thinking is influencing it is important. And also um, how, what could change, how it could change the future in terms of education for our children, for university students and so on. But before we do, I'd like you to briefly introduce yourself and tell us how did you get to um, getting into critical thinking? What pushed you in that way and anything else you'd like to share with us? Sure, thank you so much for having me on. I, I look forward to a great discussion. Uh, I got into critical thinking. I've been in higher education my whole adult life, starting when I was 22 and a graduate student at American University. And I started teaching composition, first year of composition to the oh, students cool. there. And that's where I really found my passion for teaching writing and uh, have been doing that for a, a good 30 years now. And uh, that path, however, led me eventually through a number of different positions to eventually taking a role where I was overseeing a university portfolio system. And the students had to pass a critical thinking requirement on that portfolio where they submitted papers to the university and they were graded by faculty at large and critical thinking was one of the requirements. And I was put in charge of this about 10 years ago. And I surveyed the faculty and I surveyed the students about what was most important relative to all the different requirements on this portfolio and critical thinking certainly rose to the top for everybody. So we looked at the critical thinking outcomes for the university, which were very low as they are low across the country. Uh, so that university was not unique in that by any respect, nor worse off than any others really, um, but they weren't good. And so as we looked at those critical thinking outcomes, we said, well, how do we raise this? And we basically took on the task and eventually my colleague, Dave Crillo and I took on the task of raising the critical thinking outcomes across the campus. Now that doesn't seem maybe like a very complicated thing to do, except that in most universities, it's never been done. And most universities cannot verify uh, any growth in critical thinking across the span of their studentship there. And so what we were taking on was actually a fairly unique project. It wasn't, we weren't the only ones to have ever tackled it, but it was fairly unique. And we eventually came across the research as to why there are such deficits in critical thinking. And, and we came across our own methods for solving those. And basically, so the short answer is I spent the last 10 years shifting out of a focus more on just composition exclusively, which I always had a critical thinking focus there, or thought I did, into focusing really explicitly, not just on the research of critical thinking, but how do we teach people to think critically? How do we teach faculty to teach people to think critically? And how do we know if we did it? Exactly. That is, that is a great point. I'm an educator myself. I, I work at a university as well. And so, and that is the, it, Everybody knows critical thinking is important. It's such a big buzzword, but are we teaching it? That's the, the first question. Where are we failing and how can you raise it? Because when you say we'd like to raise it, then what can you do like effectively to make sure that it is 
higher than 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 it is in uh, currently, right? So what can we do in that in that sense? I think there's a lot of questions, but whichever one you want to take first. Yeah, it's a challenge. It's a very challenging issue, specifically for some of the reasons that you raised. It's a great buzzword, mm -hmm. and everybody thinks that critical thinking is important. But then you say, well, what is it? What is it really to think? And, and there have been lots of people who have slivered up critical thinking into different things. So they might parse out something like ideating or, or systems thinking or creative thinking or divergent thinking, all as these different sort of ways to conceptualize it. And there are a lot of different definitions going around. But the problem is that when we survey faculty, and I don't mean me specifically, I mean researchers survey faculty and they say, well, how would you define it? Mm -hmm a great percentage of faculty admit that they really just can't actually define it, but they'll say, well, I know it when I see it, the old obscenity uh, thing from the court, right? Uh, or what happens is they will try to offer a definition, but if researchers try to make an assessment about whether or not that's sort of a functional definition that could be used educationally, they find that fewer than one in five faculty members are able to even define critical thinking in a functional regard. And, and that's, and in one sense, we look at that and we say, well, that's, that's awful. How can that be the case? And that, what, what a shame, and shame on them for not being able to do that. And then on the other hand, we have to acknowledge that critical thinking is probably the most complicated thing there is to define, right? Because there's so many levels baked into that, so many different things baked into that. And if you ask people to define it and they'll throw out a bunch of different concepts and words, analysis, evaluation, knowledge, good reading, good writing, communication skills, and so on and so on. None of those are wrong. None of those are not part of critical thinking necessarily. It could depend on our definitions, right? But they can all loosely fit. So it is a very difficult thing to define. What, what I would see, how I would define it is uh, thinking for oneself, to be independent and be able to see things uh, from a, one's own point of view. And I think that is something that was lacking previously, but I see an improvement because we've moved from an instructor-centered or professor-centered uh, classroom to more focusing on the students. So that shift already that is happening, I think is, uh, has the potential to lead in the right direction. However, something is going wrong and whether we actually shifted that or it's just one of those buzzwords and we say, yes, uh, we are interactive in my classes, we do this, but in the end, we're not. We're just inculcating them with our own uh, thoughts, our own points of views, and we frown upon other points of views. So that is the issue here. Like, and, 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 and how can we balance that? How can we make sure that uh, we're on the right track here? What, what would you suggest? Yeah, it's challenging. And it's challenging because we do want people to be independent thinkers and to think for themselves. But the where that morphs into a problem is where it's communicated in such a way, and it's probably not how you mean it at all, but or it's at least interpreted in such a way by the students or by people such that, that my opinion is as good as your facts, right? Uh, that we don't have to collaborate or think collectively. I don't have to listen to experts, right? So there's a dark side to that kind of way of thinking about what thinking is. Um, I'm sure not as you intended, but as many people hear it, right? And so we have to be careful about that. And then with respect to whether or not we've made the shift, the research unfortunately suggests that we haven't collectively as a body of people made that shift to student-centered teaching. Um, faculty will argue that they do, but when we either when we survey the students to say, well, did you feel as though 
you were in, included in this, you know, uh, the, the differences in percentages are stunning as to the faculty will say, well, yeah, 80, you know, 80 percent of faculty will say I did this in my class and then students say, well, about 4 percent of faculty do that in their class. I, I don't have the exact percentages in front of me. Right. Um, and then when we look at the methodologies that faculty might use that they're calling student centered when we really dig under them, sometimes they're not. Exactly. So, yeah. right. So, but they're trying and they're trying to move in the right direction. The, yeah. the, the goal is good. The aim is noble. And we just have to work on enough development of faculty so they really understand how to make those shifts into these other modes. Yeah, as uh, when I was going to university, it always there was the, the empty glass and they want to fill it with their knowledge. And, and I felt like that was insulting. Even back then, I was like, I have information. I know stuff myself. I have my point of view. I would say I would not cheat or plagiarize because I why, why would I do that? My ideas are good, right? Why would I sure. need to do that? So it's, it's but it's didn't see the encouragement as I was going along and it's just you're like a passive like observer of education and this is what education is and they would tell you this is what thinking is and they would tell you so now I, I like the fact that we are moving in the, in the correct direction but there are many other factors that are um, interfering with this and to an extent I was wondering how important is culture and the, the, your cultural ethnic background in terms of uh, critical thinking and being uh, open to discuss your points of views when you compare like all the different cultures that we have and the styles. What yeah. It's fabulous. It's a great question because it's fabulously important. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's so and it really ties into what you were initially talking about, which is this empty glass initial philosophy of education. Well, that emerged because our Western tradition of education emerged from the Germanic tradition and so on. But when there was a dearth of information, so there were lectures because there weren't books and the lecturer really was not only an expert, but maybe potentially one of the few who knew the information that you were seeking. So there was no other way for you to access that information than to listen to this person speak it to you. There was no, there weren't texts available about it for everybody and the, the printing press wasn't there yet and so on and so forth. So let's fast forward that now uh, to present day. And what we find is that model no longer holds because everyone has access to the same information now. Exactly. Yeah. And there's more information than anyone yeah. can know in any field, right? Within seconds, right? So within it's seconds. So what's the point of knowing facts when like I can just Google it and I can give you the correct facts within seconds, right? right? So that yeah, that's been taken away. Right. right. So 30 years ago, when I started in comp, it was roughly possible for me to read every article that was written on in major composition journals on composition theory. Uh, you know, I could, it would be possible if I really wanted to, to keep up. I didn't read all of them, but it would have been possible for me to do that, as with many people in many fields. Not anymore. I couldn't come close. Right. With a number of online journals and then blog posts and, you know, and so on, interviews by different comp people and so on, it just wouldn't be possible. So we all have access to this wealth of information. The problem is we don't have the skill sets to make sense of it. Education hasn't turned that corner enough yet. It's a slow turning boat, but technology sure has and culture sure has. And then, so that brings us to culture, uh, to your question. There's a deep connection there because there are very important cultural distinctions about things. So for example, here in the West, we will value um, we will often associate critical thinking with argumentation, 
uh, being able to make a good argument, understand the counter argument and so on. And that's a very Western way of thinking about an aspect of critical thinking. Well, in the East, it's much more about, well, how can we collaboratively discuss things better and draw upon our collective knowledge as a body and not be adversarial with one another, but rather be communalistic, not communistic, communalistic in working together to understand and solve problems. And there's overlap, obviously, between those cultural norms, but they're very important. But then even if we drill down in the United States, for example, um, we know there's a big difference in critical thinking skills or at least um, attitudes uh, by student, by children who are raised in families where there's not a strong central authority figure as much. So if they're raised in a family where they're asked their opinion, where if they say, well, why can't I do that? They're given an explanation or they're saying, well, why don't you think you should do that? Or what do you think you should do in this situation? Versus in a family where they're told, you'll do it because I told you to, you'll do it because I'm the father and I said that you're going to do that and I'm right because I'm the father, don't you dare question me, right? And those are maybe two extremes and there are lots of in the middles and sometimes we just have to tell our children just to do things of course, right? Um, but nevertheless, just those cultural differences within our broader culture of the United States, for example, here, make tremendous differences in the propensity for people to think critically when they go out into the world. What are they habitualized to do in their family? So, and then you could look at all different kinds of subcultures across the spectrum, and see the same kind of variations. I mean, talking about education, especially uh, children, I, I have a 12 year old myself and it's, um, for me, I always give him options. So to think for himself, to choose for himself, like whenever possible, of course, right? The option of going to school, not going to school is not really on the on the menu there. But um, other things of, of making a choice of choosing something. And then the other part is when I do something or say something, I would usually not say I told I tell you to do so, but I would say I, this is why I'm telling you this. And so to give kind of the context, the background information. Now he may agree or disagree with it but it's happening for a reason. And I think that uh, there is a problem here. I, uh, we are in, in Canada and uh, in the Canadian school system is they're pushing the kids to be independent, but they don't give them the necessary skills to survive being independent. So it's like throwing the kids into the pool and say, learn to swim. And I think that is that is not an effective way. And that's why we have issues with anxiety where, where, where people, um, they're forced to be independent at a too young age and they don't have the skills to, to survive basically, to do well. And I was wondering- a sense of what, I'm curious, what skills mm -hmm. do you feel that they're not giving in contrast to the kind of independence that they're requiring? Well, it, it depends our, our definition of independence. And for me, I see it more in the independence of the mind to be able to, to think critically, to think for oneself. Whereas a lot of people, it's just in, in independence of skills. Well, I can tie my shoelaces, I can do this. And although it's important too, I think it's more important to be able to stand up for yourself and think for yourself than these like outward behaviors. Mm -hmm. So it's like uh, basically telling your child to leave when they're 16 and say, go find a place, go find a job or supporting them and letting them develop and think and go with there with them. I think the second one is more important than just, again, that's what I mean by throwing them in the pool. Yeah. You know, just like, well, let's see let's help you, let's guide you. And 
that is missing in, in today's education, especially from what I see here. I, I myself grew up in Germany and the, the system was very different, very strict, but it helped me immensely of building my own critical thinking, of, of, of being able to see different points of views and of also disagreeing with uh, some of the things I would hear and having the courage to do so. But again, that's from learning from suffering, if you like. <laughs> I like to give my son uh, more protection in that sense, right? So, and I don't see, I think there's a mix. You want them to be one way, but you're not really supporting them to be able to do that. We're skipping a step. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm clear on that. I think it's just like we're jumping, we're going too fast. Whereas we need to just like step back and okay, let's take it together. Let's, if they fall down, kids fall down at a young age and their parents would say, no, I'm not gonna pick them up. You learn from, I, to me, that's horrendous. It's like, he's in pain. He needs your support or she needs your support, right? They know, need to know you're there for them. And I think the, they're overdoing it here where you think, okay, you need to be independent from in your crib, you're crying, I'm not gonna attend your needs. To me, that is just causing more problems down the road. So that's well, my on it. I, it's interesting. I can't speak exactly necessarily to the circumstances that you're describing in Canada, mm -hmm. but I can say that with the research bears out from this supports what you're suggesting in, in broad scope, which is that we have educators who are trying to involve more critical thinking in their classes and they're giving assignments for students to analyze or develop their thoughts and do all these things, but they don't know how to teach them how to do that. So they're asking for it more than perhaps they had in the past, which is good. They're still not asking for it enough because it should be all they're asking for, but they're still not asking for it enough, but there, it is increasing from what we hear in terms of what educators are trying to accomplish. That's great. But if you don't have the means to help the student do it, if they say, well, how do I develop a thought further? What do you mean analyze? What is it to analyze? And if this professor can't necessarily articulate what analyzing is versus evaluating or some other cognitive skill, or if they can, but it's different than what the other professor just said that they had an hour ago or last semester, then it's all confusing to the students. So now they're struggling to apply that skill that remains nebulous and amorphous, and they don't know how to do it. They don't really know what's being asked. And if they do start to conceptualize what's being asked, they might be able to see what the goal is, but they don't know how to cover the ground in between. And so we need to give them the means to actually be able to cover that ground rather than just be asked to do it. I, I really liked your point of communal, where you say we're learning together. I mean, if if we look back, I was uh, I was very curious to hear that Michelangelo would do his all his paintings because he was working with others together, and all the other painters that were involved in it, they learned from each other. We don't hear about them. He's the one who who stands out. And I think in a similar way, our our children as, as kids, they spend so much time with uh, their educators at school. But then we need to have that communal learning environment at home as well. So it's like, okay, now you know about your critical thinking skill. No, let's apply it to our life and let's take an active role in it. And this is another thing I think that's missing with parents. And I'd like to hear your, your tips for parents, but I think they're not getting involved enough. And that's the idea of if I get involved too much, you're not being independent. And that is false, right? That is not 
that is not helping. So I think that yes, a lot of time is spent in school, but we need to spend also more time with our children doing things, kind of uh, finding out where are you, where are your skills, what are you, what are you thinking in terms of critical thinking and so on. How are you developing? What questions do you have? So you can ask me and not just your your teacher, right? So I think there is a dimension missing in uh, in today's society, and I think Western society. I think we we could probably generalize in that sense. What do you think? I think you're right. And I think that there's, it ties back to the, what we, in teaching what we refer to as modeling. Mm -hmm. And we know that one of the great um, difference makers, differentiators between educators who get their students to think critically and educators who do not, it's really not the only thing, but it's an important factor, is whether or not they model good critical thinking disposition to their students. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they come up with a smart idea or they're able to show something smart to the students or, or tell them that they came up with this brilliant theory or anything like that. It means that they're listening to the students. It means that they'll say, hey, that's interesting. You know, I hadn't thought about that. Or let me reason through how I came to this idea for you. I'm gonna show you the process that I used to come to this idea, but I, I want you to challenge it. And I'm gonna think about what you're saying. And some in, they have to model intellectual humility. They have to model curiosity. They have to model a problem-solving process um, in front of the students, for, and then the students do it more. Instead of just saying, well, I want you to, here's a brilliant idea, or here's an interesting theory from a book. Now I want you to go think about and do something interesting with it. Well, that didn't model for them in any way what you really want them to go do. It just tell them to go do it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same thing with parents. Our children need us to be intellectual models for them and show them how we engage the world. How do we engage a world intellectually? How do we engage a world curiously? What does it mean to have a question? What does it mean to not know the answer to things? What is something we're curious about? Why are we curious about it? What is troubling us about it? When were we telling them that we're working, even with my son, we'll say, you know, we've decided that you can do this or you cannot do that or what have you. And we'll always ask him, why do you think you should be able to do this and stay up late or go over to a friend's house maybe when he normally wouldn't or, or you know, anything like that. So often low stakes things, sometimes higher stakes things. Um, and we'll say, well, we'll always ask him, why do you think that's a good idea? Or what's your thinking process about that? And we'll probe that and ask him a little bit more. And then sometimes we'll go off and we'll think about it ourselves. But when we come back to him say, look, you know, Sam, we're not sure that we're making the best decision here, but we're gonna tell you what our thinking is about it. Here's why we're wondering this. Here's the decision that we're making. Here's some things we're not sure about, in fact, you know, and a couple of things we're curious about that we want to ask you. And so all we're doing is modeling for him a thinking process and what it is to be intellectually humble, what it is to be an intellectual, what it is to be curious, what it is to be unsure. You know, all the things that we are as thinkers, as good thinkers, as good intellectuals, we should model in our parenting and how we engage our children in doing so. And that will teach them to go off and do it. I mean, there are other things that we have to teach them as well, specific processes of critical thinking that we want to get deeper into that for them uh, as educators or even as parents. But first, we can all model some of those traits and qualities. And I don't see many parents doing that as much as they could be. Two words that I love, curiosity and humility. And I think those are really, really important points. So they have the, the genius hour, I think, in certain places, uh, also schools I've heard, they're trying to implement that, where, where students can follow their passion, their interests, and choose a, a topic, mm -hmm. you know, a topic of their choosing that they're interested in. 
I think that's wonderful to kind of raise the curiosity and not like you have to learn this, you have to learn English literature, even if you don't like it, just giving them that kind of uh, keeping that alive. And the second thing is humility, but it is so hard to say that I don't know. And that's happened to me because I've gotten very good questions from my son. And then I say, you know, in all honesty, I do not know the answer. Let me think about it. Let me look it up. And I think uh, we need that. And a lot of parents and a lot of educators as well don't like that or don't accept that. They like to prefer to give a wrong answer than to say, like, I don't know. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're, we uh, educators certainly as well. They don't. They lack the confidence of the, of that. And and as parents, we do as well. And because the reason is, and I talk about this in my book, uh, America's Critical Thinking Crisis. And and the reason is that our society is predicated, and education is predicated foremost on the acquisition of knowledge, right? And that's wrong. We don't need it anymore. You can acquire any knowledge that we want. We have to. We need to have people who can ask an interesting question. Uh, we need to have people who can reason through solutions to problems that we haven't even thought about yet, right? The information is now the least valuable of all these commodities. So, but if we predicate education and if we predicate stature on knowledge, then of course we don't want to admit that we don't know the answer, especially if it's our field of study and we're asking, you're asking us like, I'm in a psychology class and you're asking me a psychology question or I'm in an English class, you're asking me a grammar question. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what a modal auxiliary is. And you're asking me this, well, it's gonna be terribly embarrassing, but really it shouldn't be because what we should be predicating it on is the intellectual qualities that we have. And I know a little bit about the genius hour and so on, and uh, it would be a stretch for this to really be true, but in to a degree, take it with a grain of salt, all schools should be the genius hour, yes. right? All education should be the genius hour. That's what we should be following their interests and so on. And one of the things I talk about as well in the book is that, um, you know, when I say that and I say, well, we, we let students you know, learn about what they need to learn about and follow their interests. And the trick is to, teach them the intellectual qualities and the critical thinking skills to ask interesting questions and engage the world. And the knowledge is much less important. And then I always get the what about objection. And they'll say, well, what about, you know, the founding of the United States if we're here in America? What about the Holocaust? What about science? What about chemistry? What about, and there, everyone has some what abouts that they feel as though students absolutely certainly have to learn. That we, it's, it's unethical not to teach these bodies of knowledge. And let's maybe presume that there are a few of those, but really there aren't many at all uh, because what's the value of all this information that students have if they can't think about it? And what's the value of it if they don't have a context for its application? So we learn things about the Peloponnesian War. What good does that do to my life to know anything about the Peloponnesian War? Now, I'm not saying it's not important, that we should learn history. We should study history and learn to apply it to present day. But if I'm not doing that in my life, if I don't see connections to the Peloponnesian War, if I'm not interested in that particularly, and I'm not learning how to apply it to my life and change the future of the country accordingly, then there's no value to it. And what happens in our brains neurologically, in fact, and we know this is very interesting, when we're filled with information that we don't care about, the brain from a survival mechanism is prone to forget it because it's gonna look at those things that help it survive. 
And so if the only value of information about the Peloponnesian War is that it helps me on my next test in history class, my brain will remember, it will struggle to, it doesn't want to, it will struggle to try to remember the information about the Peloponnesian War until the test in history class, and then it will dump the information about the Peloponnesian War, as it should, because it has no value to our survival as a species or to my individual happiness, right? So it's going to dump that information. What we know on the contrast is what does the brain like to do? The brain likes to think. There is a part of our brain called the basal ganglia, and it releases dopamine into our brain, into our body. And dopamine is our happy drug, for our natural happy drug from our brain. So when we are thinking, our brain releases dopamine because we evolved to like to think. If we didn't evolve to enjoy thinking and find it pleasurable, then our most advanced technology right now would be a sharper spear. You know, that's as far as we would have gotten. But our brain does not release dopamine when we're memorizing information because the brain doesn't care about memorizing information. Information is, is of little value to it. And you think about what did we, how much information do we need as a species to survive uh, when we were hunter-gatherers? It was very little information. You know, which berries you could eat, which berries you couldn't eat, you know, when these berries would come up, and you know, which animals to hunt and how to hunt them. Oh, well, that was pretty much about it, right? Uh, all these other factoids that we have now are nice, uh, in certain intellectual ways, but from our brain survivalist mentality, they're useless, most of them. And so the brain isn't interested and the brain doesn't reward us with dopamine for learning them. Yes, but we are replacing our thinking with other things. So our, our, our smartphones, our, our games, our the TV and, and things like that. And it's like stopping us from engaging in thinking. And I think these distractions are, are taking away from a, a natural high that we can get through by, by thinking which is something I've done since I was a teen, because it's just like, like you say, it's, it's a pleasure activity, pleasurable activity for me. But how can we get kids to come back to that? Because they're not reading and I'm trying my best to convince my son to read a book, but it's like, and he finds the same thing, but on video. And it's like, no, it's not the same thing, you know? So what can we do and, and to encourage that with, uh, with our kids and with our university students, young university students as well? Well, two very different populations. So with our kids, it's easier, in fact, in a lot of ways than with university students. So with our kids, it's easy. You shut off the, shut off the devices mm. and the kids can kick and scream and do whatever they want, but just shut off the devices. We, mm. Your parents, we can control them. Uh, we don't, they don't have to like it. Uh, but we can shut them off. They don't have to have no devices necessarily ever, uh, but, um, but we can turn them off in the evening. We can turn them off for a period of time and say, this is our deviceless time for the week is Saturday or, or yeah. every night, you know, from four to eight or whatever we're going to do. Um, we, for younger kids, read to them as much as they want, read to them a lot. It will make them interested in reading, even if they want to hear the same things over and over again or read the same things over and over again, that's fine. Don't push younger kids to read too early. There's research now that's very interesting that for the most part, we're actually trying to get them to read too soon because everyone's going to make sure they want to read. Whereas kids really are apt to pick up reading skills a little later, around eight or nine or 10. That's when they can really pick them up like that. Not language. Language has to be learned earlier, but reading specifically can happen much later and much more easily for a lot of kids because that's where their brains develop. Um, reading is a very unnatural thing for the brain to do. Uh, talking is not, 
but reading is. It has to connect all kinds of things with the eyes and language centers and so on that were never really meant to work together. And the brain has to wire itself to do that. It takes a long time. So let's be patient with our kids. Mm -hmm. But shut it off, uh, read, read some things to them in that time uh, and say, this is the time to read, here's a book. And you can sit there and think about whatever you want to think about, or you can sit there and write. Writing's also good, which they want, you know, or you can sit there and read. And you can read anything you want. Don't be too concerned about what they read. Uh, what they read is far less important than that thing. So if they want to read the same thing again, or it seems like it's too young for them, or it's the topic that wouldn't interest you, or whatever it is, as long as they're not reading anything that would be you know, harmful or what have you, um, let them go read whatever they want. It's just the process of reading that's important. With university kids, it's much more challenging. So you don't have nearly as much control of them. What I would love to see is this movement away from trying to get textbooks on screens because they're cheaper uh, and all these open source things and go back to print. There's considerable evidence that brains do not read the same thing, same way on, uh, on a screen, even a Kindle, even the lightless screens like Kindles as they do on paper. There's something about the thereness of paper that affects comprehension, depth, reading time, all, of, all the good things. The brain responds to it differently. We're not sure why. It's the same words, right? Uh, it appears differently though, and there's something that the brain recognizes is different about the two media. We're not sure what it is yet, but nevertheless, it's there. And I would love to see uh, drive students back to working with hard copy text. But, but it's also the effect that you have with the book. I mean, I'm old fashioned. So whenever I have book reviews and they say, we can send it to you, it's, it's right there, like the few minutes. But I say, no, please send me a hard copy. Because yeah. for me, it's like, holding the book, going through the pages, going back, feeling it, like sensing it is yeah. very important to me. And I, I like to take notes and it's not the same as seeing it on the screen because I'm involved with the text. It's like a, a relationship between the object and me. And uh, I, that's missing for me on the screen. Like I, I can't, I don't like reading on the screen. But I, I think also because I am the the older generation, if you will, because we didn't have, I didn't grow up with uh, with the screen. So that's why it's also a bit hard for me to adjust to it. I think that's, uh, that could be a, a factor as well. I'm the same way. I like the physicality of books. I think there's a psychology to the physicality of a book. Uh, but and then as I was saying, the research is actually supporting us in this. Even young people don't read, this, read better in text on paper in physical paper than they do on on screens. There's something about that that's different for the brain as it interacts with the media. So, no, so we're yeah. on the right track. <laughs> so we're on the right track. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe at some point they'll come up with the technology that accounts for that and changes that, which would be fine, but we're not there yet. So let's go back to having books instead of Kindles. And yeah. and by the way, you know, this for people who like, if they're going on their vacation and they want to sit on the beach and read, uh, you know, some uh, light novel just for the enjoyment of it, and Kindle's easier. You don't have to schlep 20 books on the plane with you. Grab your Kindle and go have a good time, right? But if we're talking about reading for any kind of depth uh, of learning or, or thinking, that's a different story at that point. What age would you say is good uh, to have Dostoevsky, to have my kid read Dostoevsky or Kierkegaard? I mean, these are, I've, I've been waiting since he was born. It's like one day he will read these books, but... <laughs> the answer is as soon as they're ready. As soon as they're ready, okay. Yeah. Whatever that is for that kid. You know, they'll all get there eventually. Uh, but, and you can, you know, obviously you can put harder text and you can work with them on how to read uh, harder and harder text as they, if you really want to, you know, ramp up that skill set. 
Yeah. But yeah, there's no age that's the right age. I think actually a lot of texts are put in front of kids too early in schools, uh, but it's hard to separate that from their disinterest. <laughs> no, and some of the books they get, I think like that's that's not interesting. I'd like you to read my books instead, you know, and yeah. that I find interesting and stimulating. Uh, I'd like to move to the United States and talk about what's happening there and how um, how critical thinking could change the outlook. And um, for me, it's uh, things are very unstable and it's but it's not something that happened overnight. And I, I don't think we can really blame the, the, the president or president, ex-president Trump to, for this. I think this is something that's been been going on for quite some time and a kind of like um, uh, separation between uh, the uh, the people who have critical thinking skills and then those who do not, and that gap has has, has really grown. So, what can we do? It's uh, apart from investing in education and so on, but what else can we do? Because education on its own is not changed. There are some educated people who say some very dumb things, right? So, uh, what can we do? Right? How can we deal with that, especially in the context of the United States? It's challenging. I think to a certain extent, this is a problem of our own making um, by the intelligentsia. So uh, intelligentsia decided long ago in this country, more, perhaps more than in some others, that education should be erudite and not necessarily directly applicable to the world or immediately applicable to the world because it makes us distinctive and special and have this you know, ivory tower of knowledge and so on, right? Well, if the counter effect of that, and we have to take responsibility for it as the intellectuals in the country, is anti-intellectualism. That the people are going to say, well, you know, you don't need none of that book, learn book learning, right? Uh, well, you don't need that book learning if the book learning is useless and it's not practical knowledge. And they say, well, I have all this practical knowledge. I don't need what you're learning in your fancy books. But we were the ones who wrote those books. And we wrote those books to not have practical application in people's lives and have an educational system that doesn't have an immediate application in people's lives. Again, like the Peloponnesian War, or insert whatever it is here that we're studying today. Usually it doesn't have a direct application. So of course people say, well, I don't need, you know, those intellectuals don't know what the real world is about. And all their knowledge isn't that great because, you know, I can do great things here in my life and I don't need their books to do it. And largely they're right. Uh, unfortunately, uh, because we wrote the wrong books, at least the ones they're studying in school. Not that there aren't many great books out there for people to read that can apply to people's lives. But even if there are, a lot of people have never learned how to apply them. So the first layer of the problem, as I see, is that we created the anti-intellectualism that exists uh, to a degree, right? To a degree, we created that and we have to take responsibility for that. Uh, we created an educational system that doesn't make people live immediately live better lives and feel empowered to live a better life. Rather, they, they have a system where they have to take a test. And eventually down the road, in theory, if you get a good education and a college degree, then you can lead a better life. But the goal has become getting the college degree, not actually a more intellectually rich life. And now we've also shown that getting the college degree doesn't really help either because you're in a tremendous amount of debt mm -hmm. and your wage might not be that great. Students who graduate good colleges who work in retail stores and so on. So there's all those problems. I think we need to bridge the gap. I mean, I do know intellectual. If you look, I, I read philosophy, and then the philosophers are kind of lost in the whole world. And I think, like, bring it to the real world, connect yeah. it, and uh, don't look down on other people. 
you know, and I think that is like the highbrow kind of uh, idea of like, yes, I am, I have more knowledge than you. I have, uh, and that is not helping. And I think if what it does is uh, antagonizes the other part as well. Part of what I do or try to do with my blog is also to take philosophy, but say, look, it is applicable to your life. You can do something, it can benefit you and see that the, the use of it but I don't see enough people doing it. And probably people will not like it. It's like, why are you uh, helping others? Why are you like uh, diluting your, your own thoughts to appeal to the masses, if you like? And that has, has caused a lot of resentment and a lot of people being against the elites. And I love the elites, but I do agree that there needs to be more communication, there needs to be a bridge between the two. And that's why there is so much division in my view. So polarized opinions, like, you know, find a common ground in a way. Both sides need to make sacrifices to, to reach that, I think. Well, I think you raise a great point, right? So um, there's, there's room in this world and there has to be, and there should be, and it's critically important for high-minded philosophers <laughs> who talk to other high-minded philosophers through the language of high-minded philosophy as a small group of people relative to the world population. But we need those people. Those are very yeah, well, I admire them. I do admire yeah. them. Yeah. Right? Then there's also a, a space for the, you know, the, the plumber who you know, doesn't want to read philosophy at all and just wants to plumb and watch football and you know, hang out. And that's great, too. Right? The, that, that person can be happy, wonderful, good, ethical, thoughtful person, still smart person. Just that's what they enjoy and that's great. But there should also be room, and this goes to your point of what we're not achieving well enough, I don't think, mm -hmm. which is that there should be a lot of space, much more than we have and the most space of all the spaces is for the philosopher who wants to talk to the plumber and the plumber who wants to talk to the philosopher. Mm -hmm. right? And they should there be spaces where they can still have a conversation where the philosopher is saying, here's how this high-minded philosophy applies to your life and to plumbing and the plumber saying, here's how I've taken, you know, here's something about plumbing that you should think about in your philosophy. Mm -hmm. And just a space for that discourse and dialogue to happen. And not always, it's not always perfect back and forth. You know, if I need to know something about plumbing, I talk to a plumber, I'm not an equal in that conversation. And the plumber might not be an equal in the conversation of philosophy at all times either. And that's okay too, but there should be much more forum for those two parties, as I'm, I, I know I'm creating icons here, but for those two parties or archetypes, for them to have a conversation with another, like that's not happening enough in our society. Exactly. I think another aspect to this problem is, uh, again, an educational system that's bent on the right answer and listening to an authority figure who has the right answer. Well, what did we have in Trump? We had an authority figure who said he had the right answer, or he didn't have the right answer. But he said he did, and he was, and he came, and he proposed himself as the strongest of authority figures. So if we've trained people through an educational system to follow people in authority, the teacher, and and give the answer that the teacher says is right, and learn what the teacher says is true, and respect the teacher, then we have conditioned people in a respect to follow Trump. <laughs> and third thing is, if being right is right and being wrong is wrong and there's no room in between, then we've also conditioned the people not to say, hey, you know what, I was wrong about Trump. Or my, my opinion about this is wrong because the expert said so. Because well, now if being wrong is so bad as it has been in school for so long, then we've conditioned people never to want to be wrong, to always be right. Should be fine to be wrong. 
right? It, part of being a good intellectual, as we were just talking about earlier with respect to our kids, is saying, gee, I was wrong. Yes. about I thought this thing and I was really wrong, or I made this decision, I was really wrong. And that should be welcomed and it should be allowed for, I talk about this in education in the, in the book, in, in terms of mastery learning, which is a, a method of teaching that allows plenty of room for people to fail forward, to make mistakes, to get wrong answers, to come up with bad solutions, go back and do it again without penalty, without that coming off their grade for their class and so on. Plenty of time to do be wrong and use failure as a positive, as a learning experience instead of failure just being a lower grade that you're going to get in the class. And we don't have that enough either. So it teaches people to try once, and if they fail, to feel like failures instead of to know that being wrong is part of the process of becoming smart. <laughs> and and we evaluate everything by grades. I mean, as, as students too, and I see it as my students. And I'm thinking at times, you know, if if you fail but you learn something, there were skills involved. That is worth more than passing where you didn't learn a single thing. And I think that is again that focus on money, that focus on education. The sun has come up. To uh, it's actually I didn't expect sun today, so it's uh, we're attracting uh, good vibes here with the, with the sun. Um, so I, I think that is something important, that kind of mindset of, of uh, seeing education for me has always been something that I was interested in. And the rest was just, okay, I did well, I didn't well. It didn't actually, it did matter, but not as much as the doing things that I love, the curiosity, the interest. And that's why I've, I've chosen some very strange topics to, to, to study and sometimes they're not even related with each other, but I was fascinated by it. And so I think that idea of like also having an authority figure is where you have your father who always tells you what to do, how to do things and you obey them. And that is again projected onto the leader of, uh, of the times. And when you get somebody, who's showing empathy, who's saying, yeah, I might be, I, I am wrong on this, then the, we see them as weak. I mean, a, a lot of people see them as weak and then they don't get elected. Right. So it's like a vicious cycle of like, that's why we don't have good leaders because we get trapped into these images, uh, these uh, myths that they create about themselves. And when in fact, there's nothing there, you know, it's pretense, it's just acting, it's pretending, you know, so. It's exactly true. Look at the criticism that leaders get if they say, I, I, I made a wrong vote on that bill, or I, you know, uh, I don't know enough about this to answer that question, <laughs> or what have you, or I changed my mind on this issue. Yeah, yeah. Should be the best thing in the world that someone changed their mind on an issue or admitted that they made a wrong vote. These are people we should hail uh, and value for doing so. These are intellectual traits that we want to see. But you're certainly correct that most people interpret it as weakness and failure. And the idea of having to be consistent. I mean, I am um, often, I change my mind, right? And I, I put on my Twitter, it's like, well, my opinions can change overnight and I don't have to explain myself why I believe something else. It's because something came up, it changed my mind, like you say. But we expect people to be exactly the same they were 10 years ago, they're now, and they will be into the future. And identity is not something that's stable, it just goes up and down and goes in all different directions. So I of think course. that, and, and, uh, but we're missing that. We're pretending that everything is stable and consistent and that when uh, Mark says this then, and then he said something uh, else uh, before that, so which one is the true Marx? Or if you look at, at Christ, what Christ said, was Christ a Christian? Well, he 
well, that doesn't make any sense because that's our interpretation of what we see as 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 Christ as a Christian, right? So I think we, we this is a fallacy we have of a stable personality, a stable world. It's pretty chaotic in real life, right? Right. Yeah, the world's a complex, messy place, mm -hmm. and, and and we should embrace that messiness and not try to oversimplify. It's one of the things that education does that's so darn awful is it tries to make everything so simplified that yeah. it, it can be tested and, and measured and knowledge mm -hmm. about it can be quantified and so on. Instead of teaching students contend with the messiness of the world and not break it down into little simple tidbits and chunks. The world's a messy place. And, and that's where we always on, uh, we are, my colleague and I, Dave, we're always talking about uh, what they're calling wicked problems uh, or complex problems. They might be called messy problems, but you know, of engaging students with these problems where there isn't an answer. You know, uh, there's, there's no answer to racism in the United States. There are, there are paths, there are better things that we can do and worse things that we do, but there's no one right answer to the problem of racism or to any major problem that we're gonna face in the world. And we have to contend with students to deal with problems that like this that are messy and convoluted and weird and troubled by information and bias and sexism and racism and whatever, you know, all these psychological dispositions and cultural things and what have you, and still try to think their way through them to degrees, right? Not to come to a perfect answer, but to contend with the messiness of the world and mm -hmm. see the world as messy and value that. And, and it's the gray area. I mean, we always, we often tend to see things as white and black, and then we go back to the past and criticize. Somebody I'm very fascinated with is Thomas Jefferson, especially recently. I've been just like, just reading about him and watching documentaries about him. And I, I, I think it's unfair when, when people say, well, well, he was a slave owner, right? And that makes him not deserving of our respect. But what, what about all the good stuff that he's done? I mean, we are human beings and we can't have people to a standard that is godlike where no, you cannot make mistakes. So you have to be consistent when we're not and we are evolving we're learning we're living in a context we're living in a society and, and that kind of idea is is not helping us to move forward i think and that kind of like just kind of getting rid of the past without uh, confronting it without dealing with the issues without talking about them openly i i don't think that's that's helping and one of the things that jefferson created with his american experiment was the idea of individuality and here, so life and liberty and happiness. But these are mutually ex exclusive things. These are things that are in conflict with each other. So it's not that they can be side by side and you can have your freedom, your individuality without uh, your social responsibility. And we see that, especially in the United States, because that is the, the cradle of those wonderful ideas but it's being hijacked. It's being taken in the wrong direction. It's taken to an extreme. Individuality, I am completely for it, but not to the degree where I don't respect any people's rights. Right. There, there has to be a play there, the, the, the gray area, the messiness that you mentioned. And uh, I don't see that enough. In, I think you're right. Uh, I think that it's difficult for people to know where to draw the lines. And I think it's mm -hmm. okay for us to say, it's, we're not always clear where to draw the line. So mm -hmm. we consider the Jefferson example, which I think is a fabulous example of this. Um, let's contrast that against, uh, let's say, um, the Confederate flag in the United States or uh, Civil War, statues of Civil War heroes who you know, fought for the South uh, and so forth. Well, there are lots of those that we should take down. 
I'm not a fan of oh, yeah. that, right? <laughs> that yeah. just because we we once put a statue up that it never should come down, right? Mm -hmm. Some statues sure should come down right. to something. Some flags should come down. Yeah, yeah, I agree with right? that. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, yeah. you know, it is hard to know where to draw the line. You look at Jefferson, we should be able to hold two ideas in the mind at the same time. He was a slave owner and that wasn't good. He also did a lot of great things and was one of the most progressive thinkers of his day that led to other progressive thought and so on. And he should be, you know, revered for that. And we should, I think, I don't think we should take statues of Jefferson down. I don't think we should change the names of high schools of Jefferson. I do think that where the answer is, is to say to students, and even this could even be the case with, you know, bad statues too, but to say to students, yeah, our school's named after Thomas Jefferson. Now we want to tell you some things about it. And there are going to be some good things and some bad things about him. <laughs> exactly. Because he was a person like everybody else. But here's why we still think we should name the school after him. Uh, you know, and this is our thinking about that. What do you think? You know, and so not to say, Jerry, you know, I think part of the problem is that we are not, we don't have that conversation or we don't speak in ways that will say to students, this is messy. This isn't perfect. <laughs> exactly. exactly. You know, because we haven't found the perfect person to name a school after because <laughs> there aren't any so instead we have this guy jefferson and he did some really amazing things right and, and some of the things the way you're living your life right now the whole idea of democracy in the world was put off by this guy but you gotta also tell you jefferson had some slaves yeah. and that was not good you know and, and oh he and he said some horrible that. things yeah things yeah horrible things <laughs> and he recognized that a little bit but not enough and he should have done better maybe for his time yeah. uh but so what do you guys think now? Should we keep the school name or not? We're going to keep it, but at least we could ask you, or let's have that debate every year about it. Let's talk about it. And let's try to understand, though, there was an economic necessity because he had these he, his expensive wine, he had his books, and he needed to make money some way. And he had a lot of debts anyhow. In the end, he just died, poor person. But he needed, he, he counted on the slaves. He needed it, although he didn't like it. At the same time, it was something that benefited him. And that is a struggle we have as human beings. And yes, he, he chose the, the wrong, that was the wrong choice, but still. And I think even like the, the, the dark from the, the darker figures of our life, I think we still should look at them, talk about them. How does that make you feel? Don't, don't take away the statues. Let's just be reminded this was a time, but this is not a hero. This is just a reminder of something we don't want, like Hitler. I mean, you, you, you see that and you know, and there is that connected with it. And we, we don't want to erase it because we need a reminder of not to take that path. You know? And what is uh, bothering me to an extent with cancer culture is like, yes, let's like ignore, let's just like erase it. Don't, because it's offering a valuable lesson. And uh, we can't just like erase everything and move forward. We need to build on it and move forward. And that's a valuable lesson that is in our history that we have to take advantage of. Again, with what happened in the United States, with the history of, of slavery, it's a horrible thing, but it's something that we can really learn from. So it doesn't happen again, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a precaution and cautionary tale for, for the future. Yes, with history and with all things, true. <laughs> Let's, let's let's embrace the world as a complex place. <laughs> and uh, you know, I I what what makes me sad so many times is when I say that to people, and, and, and they'll say, "Well, you know, young kids, they're not ready to understand that." And I say, well, they are. You know, you're you're out of your mind. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are different ages of complexity, of course, in this, right? But, you know, look at what my son will contend with in terms of his life. And he lives a very, you know, very comfortable life as a child for the most part. But still, there's, he's very aware, even from when he was, he's 10 now, but when he was five and six and so on, of politics at school, uh, the complexity of the relationships there and having to get his work done, but also wanting to talk to kids and play and do recess. And, you know, this kid plays sports and they always want to play this and I don't want to play that. They never play the thing that I want. You know, there's, there's all kinds of complexity to his life that he's contending with and his brain's contending with all the time. And then in school, many kids of his age, and he goes to a Montessori school, so it's a little bit different, but many kids of his age are then told, you have to memorize these five facts, and you're not ready to deal with the, you know, the complexity of the world, the messy, wicked problems. Mm -hmm. Their whole day is dealing with messy, wicked problems, except in school. And this is what I say again in my book, which is that um, the only way that humans learn the way they learn in school is in school. That's it. It's the only way their brains are asked to do that is the time they spend in school. Everywhere outside of school, their brains are dealing with a messy world in complex ways and, you know, rich in fast ways. Only in schools are things broken down into neat little lessons that are digestible and testable and so on and so forth. The rest of the world's messy and complicated. And their brains deal with that because they evolved to deal with that and they like dealing with that. It's okay. Well, so I like the messiness. This is why math never attracted me because it's too clear for me. I want philosophy. I want psychology where you can debate things, where you can, there's no clear answer. And I think by acknowledging that we're moving again in the right direction of reaching a clearer answer. And just also the idea of a more perfect union. And it's something we forget because we see that's a perfect union, but no, he says more perfect. Perfection is not a state we actually want to reach. We want to be, and the same with pursuit of happiness. It's not happiness itself, the pursuit thereof. Right. And I think that is our drive. That is our motive. That is like pushing us on. And uh, people don't see it. And happiness is, I want it now. And uh, this, I'm entitled to it. The world owes me happiness. And that is, again, the wrong direction and causes more and more issues and problems, I think. Well, I think that going back to your Jefferson, to wrap it back to that, I think the founders, many of the founders and men of the Enlightenment, mostly they were men, but you know, people of the Enlightenment, would be appalled at oh, the yeah. notions that were, that were bringing out. They, they might be fine with getting rid of their statues or what have you, but I think they'd be appalled at how little we've changed the Constitution to, of the United States to reflect new knowledge that we have. And I think they'd be appalled at some of the ideas that how far we've devolved away from the ideas of the Enlightenment mm -hmm. uh, and let that slip away uh, because and, that's and never what they were for. Necessity of the times, you needed guns to protect yourself. You needed it, right? Now you don't. You don't need automatic weapons to protect yourself. I mean, it's just like the conditions, the environment, the context, the history. And I think people are just missing on all of that. It's like, no, it says it there. Therefore, I can do this now. And the two don't go together, you know? No, I think they would have, yeah, I'm quite confident. I, and there were, I think there were some writings on this as well that they would they expected the constitution to be amended and rewritten potentially many times moving forward, the constitutional conventions. It was not so set on. in stone. They call it an experiment. They themselves yeah. call it the American experiment. An experiment is trial and error. Let's find out, okay, this is working. This is not working. Let's yeah. get rid of it. It's not working. But at the same time, we do need that stability because then you get people who will just ignore the whole thing and just go their own path. So it's, it's, it's again, messy. <laughs> yeah, and if we say this to a lot of people in the United States, they'll say, well, you obviously don't love our country. 
uh, if you want to change the constitution, if you want to rewrite the constitution, you don't love the country. Yeah. I say, well, no, that's, that's what the country was founded on. Mm-hmm. That is the very love of this idea of the American experiment, wherever it is in the world too, as it's spread out of democracy and the enlightenment was to use our best reason at all times and our best knowledge and our best thinkers to, to have the best society and write the best constitution again. And we should always be rethinking it. Now, you know, they, they're, I'm not saying we should revise the constitution every year, yeah. but I think we should have revised it more than we have. Yeah. Uh, and I think they would have thought so. Just the document by Ken Burns, I saw about Thomas Jefferson, and there's a really interesting moment where there's a, a person of color who says, well, uh, my grandfather told me at some point that I'm a descendant of uh, Jefferson. And this was passed on orally throughout from like all the generations. And then you have a historian say, a woman said, no way, this does not fit with the ideals and so on. And you have the highbrows like ideas like, no, this guy is lying basically, right? And this was before they had the DNA test. And I just love the fact that he was proved, the oral tradition was proven right over the highbrow idea of like, no, that could not happen. That's not uh, fitting in with the personality of, uh, of Jefferson. And yes, it did, you know? And so I think that's for us a great lesson as well. It's like, well, we can't be sure of things. We have to follow also some forms of knowledge that is not academic only, you know, that's been passed on from generation, like oral tra- traditions and histories. And I think that uh, that is important too. I'd like to talk uh, a bit and uh, finish also about the critical thinking initiative that uh, I, I read about. What is that? What does that entail? What do you do uh, for that? I mean, um, so the critical thinking initiative is uh, Dave Crillo and I founded it. Uh, it is our enterprise to bring critical thinking uh, out into the world more. There are, uh, the Critical Thinking Initiative podcast is for educators and they can listen and learn about research on the teaching of critical thinking as well as our particular methods for that as well. And there are resources on the site that we're, we're moving to a new website shortly on that. And uh, we're also launching an online program that parents can get for their kids. Uh, these would be for sort of maybe early teens and up uh, that would start to teach them fundamentals of critical thinking and so forth. That's gonna be available very shortly. Uh, within a week or so from this uh, taping. So it might be after you released it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there'll be a lot of other, and some corporate consulting as well, because there's a lot of workplaces that are clamoring for more critical thinking to make their uh, people more successful at their work and so on. So that's what the Critical Thinking Initiative is about. It's really about taking this out, out of academia from, from our little neck of the woods into the world more globally and trying to have a bigger impact. Yes, absolutely. It's it's been a great pleasure. It's I just loved our conversation. I think I, I could go on. I could go on for a couple of hours, but we have things to do. So at some I got the sense we could do this for a very long time. Maybe, yeah. maybe we could do it as a series at some point. But I just love talking to you. Thank you very much uh, for uh, agreeing to this interview. It's been just a great pleasure. And um, yeah. Good luck with everything. And I will post the information here on my blog post and let people know also of your many books that uh, you have published on on such an important topic, critical thinking. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thank you.